Buddy? Every week, I keep adding a new piece of technology. So this week, I've got the clicker. So let's see if that works. Oh, there we go. Okay. And I aim up there. That's right. Okay. What is it? The $6 million man who's like, you know, half robot or whatever. Well, welcome, welcome. Thank you guys for coming. Um, we've been going through a series called Fruitful Disciple. And man, I just need more space. Uh, and we've been trying to unpack that, what it means to be a fruitful disciple. What does it mean? We know what it means for the disciples 2,000 years ago with Jesus. But what does it mean for us to be fruitful disciples? What does it mean for God to have an impact on our life and for our life to mean something for God's kingdom and mean something to other people? So last week we, we kind of unpacked this idea of influence. And we talked about the first point that I tried to make was that we are all creatures of influence, for good or for bad. We can be really influential and we can spur people towards God, or we could be really influ influential and we can spur people away, away from God. So this idea of influence and worldliness, they're, they're actually closely related together. Um, because just as growing closer to God will help influence other people towards God, as you drift away from God, as you find yourself you know, spending less and less time with God, you'll also find that your actions will start to spur people away towards God too. So, what is this idea of worldliness? Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend, and we had totally different ideas of what worldliness meant, even when we said that word. So, we're going to try and unpack it tonight. So, <laughs> what does worldliness even mean? Uh, anybody watch Pinky and the Brain? I don't know. Yeah, I figured there was going to be like five hands. So, anyway, I, I grew up on it. I love it. So, I had to throw it in there. So what does it mean? Try to take over the world. That's, that's Pinky's, uh, I mean, that's Brain's uh, whole thing, right? So worldliness defined, there's a couple definitions. So if you were to Google worldliness, which I did, you would get the first definition, which I think is what my friend was talking about when he said the quality of being experienced and sophisticated. So, you know, so-and-so so is very you know, he's very worldly, he's very well-traveled. I'm not talking about that at all, so let's just throw that one out. The second definition is closer to what I want to talk about tonight. So it says, concern with material values or ordinary life rather than a spiritual existence. And I highlighted rather than, but that's still not close enough to what I want to talk about. So this is what I mean when I'm going to be a for our purposes tonight. When we make things of this world more important than the things of God. So that is going to be our working definition for worldliness tonight. So anytime you hear me say worldliness, that is what I mean. When we're 
we're taking things, they might not be bad things, but we're taking things and things of this world and we're making them more important than the things of God. Now, we actually got to, we, we met together, um, how we even started this series. We met together and we got to kind of pick which topics we wanted to talk about. And I saw influence and my eyes lit up. I love talking about influence. I love talking about um, the, the impact that you can have on someone's life. And then I saw worldliness. And I do not want to talk about this. Um, but I felt like God wanted me to talk about it. Um, so I chose this topic tonight because I honestly feel like I, need, I needed to dig deep into the scriptures. I needed this for me. Um, because I struggle with with worldliness. If I'm being honest, um, I like to achieve. I like to strive. You know, I like to compete. Um, and if I'm not careful, I find that my priorities can really get out of whack fast. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm talking tonight about worldliness, because I wanted to, to dig deeper into it. So Questions to ponder. Um, We're going to come back to these questions, but here are three questions I thought of and I want you guys to kind of be thinking about and unpack as we uh, unpack this together. So what are ways that I'm successful in putting God first in my life and how? And are there things in my life now that I'm making more important than my relationship with God? And the last one, what do you think the most difficult areas to trust God are for most people? So, again, we're going to come back to those. You don't have to memorize them. Uh, I would love it if, I would love to hear people's feedback. If, uh, you know, if you're on the East Rock page, I would love it if, if somebody, you know, answered these out and thought about them and said, you know, here's what I think. I would actually love to talk about that. So, during this study, I, I prayed about it, I thought about it a lot, and I thought, I felt like God was telling me to talk about the life of David. Um, this is not David, this is Batman um, from, uh, <laughs> from The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, if you know the story, he gets thrown in this pit, uh, Bane's prison, and he has to climb his way out, and they make this big thing about him rising. Um, but David kind of rises. Here's the, here's the parallel. I'm not crazy. Um, David rises in, from obscurity. You know, he's like the youngest of all of these brothers. He's like often thrown. He's often kind of just overlooked. I can see he's probably not talked about. The Bible says that he's handsome, but that's pretty much, you know, the only thing he's got going for him at the time. They stick him with the sheep. He doesn't even get to go off to war uh, with his brothers. Um, And he goes from being this, like, shepherd, this anonymous shepherd. And a shepherd was a lowly job back then. He goes from being this, like, anonymous shepherd and in the middle of nowhere to ruling this kingdom of Israel. And you can see God's hand all the way through it. So... I actually read, read through all of David's story in uh, First and Second Samuel, 
and uh, it was awesome. If you, uh, if you have never read First uh, and Second Samuel, it, it's sort of like an action movie. It really reads like you could take it, you could literally take it out of the Bible, give it, you know, doctor it up a little bit, and it would be a really awesome movie. Um, there's a lot of violence, there's a whole lot of action, but here are some of the things that, that happened to David along his life. So, the highlights of his life, he was an eager, holy warrior. So, David goes and he voluntarily decides to go fight Goliath. He is not put in that position. Now, this, this guy, Goliath, you know, we know that he's huge. We know that he was gigantic and substantial, over eight feet, eight feet tall, um, most people think. But he had, you know, he had great armor, but he was also a trained mercenary. You know, he had fought these, he had fought these fights before. He was a, a veteran soldier and had probably killed a lot of people just like David. And that's why nobody wanted to fight him. And so David voluntarily puts himself in that fight because of his faith in God. Um, he also, because of that, he's successful and God, or not God, excuse me, Saul gives him his daughter's uh, hand in marriage. And uh, there's another crazy story there I won't get into now, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, y'all just need to go and read First Samuel. It's awesome. Um, so he protects Saul's life. So in spite of constant pursuit and multiple attempts on Saul's life, on David's life, David still spares Saul's life. So let me try and explain that because I'm a little flustered. So David is, uh, he's this champion. He kills Goliath. Saul kind of keeps giving him assignments, all these military campaigns, and everything that he does, David seems to do well in. It's like God is just mowing down everybody, everybody that he goes up against. God is just blasting them out of his way, and he has this wild success over and over and over in, in all these battles. And he has so much success that people start like writing a pop song about him. And they say, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. You know, that must have been like the first hit. And it was like well known because the Philistines mention it later. Like, isn't this the same David that is from that hit song? Um, so, <laughs> so he's had all this success. And as Saul begins to see how much success he's having, he starts to get angry and jealous. And then Saul even tries to kill him a couple times. Now, the story is still a little um, confusing to me, but David is apparently playing the harp for, for Saul at a dinner or something, and Saul gets this crazy rage over him, and he tries to spear him or throw a spear at him or something like that. And David, it says David evades him. But he does that twice. Now, for the life of me, I can't understand. If somebody tried to spear me into a wall or throw a spear at me while I was playing guitar or something, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't keep playing the next song. I'd be like, hmm, probably not a good idea. 
but David does. And so then it doesn't end there. Saul keeps pursuing after him and keeps trying to kill him. And David keeps getting these warnings, either from God or from other people, saying, hey, David, um, just so you know, Saul is going to try and make an attempt on your life. You need to watch out. You need to get out of here. And, uh, and so David keeps doing that, and he's on the run. He begins to just be on the run while Saul is chasing after him. And God actually gives David two chances, two opportunities to kill Saul when he could not defend himself. Uh, one time when they're asleep in a cave, and another time, I think, when Saul goes to use the bathroom in a cave. David just happens to be in all these caves. It's like every time Saul goes into a cave, David's there somehow. Um, but instead of, instead of slicing down Saul, he doesn't. He says, who am I to touch the Lord's anointed one? And so, which really gets to my, my next point. When I read through the accounts of David, I can't tell you, I really can't tell you how many times he was led by the Lord in everything he was doing. I mean, if he was going out to a great battle, he was being led by the Lord. If he was asking, you know, there's just con- there are these constant times where David is asking God, God, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And God is answering him, and he is responding to God's answer. But I just thought, wow. You know, like, it, it really strikes me. Um, I'm not a soldier. You know, I'm not, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a veteran. I have a lot of respect for, for veterans. Um, and just the idea of veterans going into war and not knowing if they're going to make it or not is a scary thought. Like, that scares me just thinking about it. Like, I, I really can't imagine what it's like to go off to war. And David consistently put his trust in God over and over and over. Um, and willingly put himself in those positions. And I just, that's just amazing. And so he goes from being this super blessed guy who, again, who was just, just a shepherd, just out in the middle of nowhere, minding his own business, he goes to deliver food to his brothers who are at war, and he hears that he hears Goliath cursing, you know, cursing the army of Jerusalem, and then he he gets into the. That's how he gets wrapped up into all this. So, God takes him from that and wipes out everything before him. It's like God goes before him and just leads him straight into the the kingdom. And eventually, God makes him king. Um, he does not kill Saul. Um, you'll have to go read, go read uh, the end of 1 Samuel, I think, or maybe the beginning of 2 Samuel. I can't remember. Anyone remember? Beginning of 2 when Saul... Okay. Beginning of 2 Samuel to see how Saul perishes. No, it doesn't. I don't think. I don't know, there were a lot of caves. So, he goes from being this king who's anointed by God. Um, 
All the people love him. And then if you know the story of David at all, you know that he has this fall. And the fall is actually um, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and some of chapter 12, which I want to read to you guys tonight. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. So David should be out going to battle, but he stays behind. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So... David is supposed to be out leading his army, but he's not for some reason. He sees Bathsheba, um, he summons her, one thing leads to another, um, and then they find out that she is pregnant. She tells them that she's pregnant. And then, instead of stopping right there and confessing, he does what all of us have done from one point or another where we try and hide something and it, it gets way worse. One sin leads to another sin leads to another sin and pretty, sure, pretty soon you wake up and you don't even know how you got to where you are anymore. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David and doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went up to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah, Uriah did not go down to the house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you dwell in booths? Or why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in the booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So what David tries to do is sneaky. Um, he basically says, okay, I've been with this woman. This woman is pregnant go get this woman's husband from the battlefield and hopefully this man will be with this woman and then it'll be the perfect plan. They'll never know. But it was customary for warriors back then if they were in a battle that they would abstain from being with their wife. So Uriah does this. He does not go and 
And uh, he gives his reasoning to David. He says, you know, how can I have the comforts of my home when all my men are out fighting this battle? You know, I, I can't do it. I will not do that. So David's plan is foiled. So he says, okay, well, stay another night. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So then David says, okay, well, he won't do it volitionally, but maybe if I get him drunk, then he'll, you know, then he'll go be with his wife. But he still doesn't. So David is running out of, he's running out of answers at this point. So in the morning, David writes a letter to Job. And he sent it by the hand of Uriah. So this guy has his own letter. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. Well, that's how, that is how Uriah perishes. He delivers his own death letter to the general. The general puts him at the front of the battle, calls all the troops away, and he is killed. At this point, we don't know what David's thinking. We don't know if he's having a sigh of relief. He probably is. He's probably thinking that he's covered it up as best he could, and, uh, and, you know, no one will be the wiser. But then something happens. Then chapter 12. There was a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan, Nathan goes to David. He says, David, there's this guy. Basically, he, he goes to David and he says, David, there are these two people. One of them has a, a whole lot of sheep. He's got thousands of sheep. And one of them has just one little itty-bitty sheep. And the one that has this one itty-bitty sheep, he loves that sheep. And he's poured his, his life into that sheep. He, he hugs it, he sleeps with it, he brushes its hair. He's crazy about that little sheep. That's all he's got. But he says, the man with thousands of sheep steals the one little sheep and kills it. What should happen to that man? And this was common for people to come to the king and say, you know, can you settle this dispute? Well, David gets angry. He gets furious. And he says, the man who did that surely is deserving of death. And Nathan says, but David, that's what you've done. And the picture here is supposed to be, I don't know what they look like, honestly. Um, but the picture here is supposed to be that meeting where Nathan goes, and it doesn't say how he knew. We can only, we can only infer that God showed Nathan because nobody else knew about this. David wouldn't go publicizing it. He had Uriah killed. 
But the thing that encourages me about this is that God didn't leave him alone until judgment. God didn't let David just go on living and keep going into more and more sin and figure out that he had messed, you know. No, God tells Nathan, sends Nathan to David, and they deal with it. So, there are countless things that we can learn from this, um, from this story. But I've got three observations for us. So, when we're talking about this, it's important to say that there's a difference between salvation and intimacy with God. So, David had trusted in God. Uh, as I said before, he trusted in God with his life. And that, to me, that's what salvation is. It's saying, God, you are my only hope. Jesus is my only hope, right? We understand that to be Jesus now. But David just trusted God. He trusted God with his life. So when David sinned against God, he didn't lose his salvation. He lost his intimacy with God. And as believers, when we sin against God, we don't lose our salvation. We lose our intimacy with God. So when David chose to place a greater value on his current desires than to walk with God, it was his intimacy with God that was impacted, not his salvation. So Ephesians chapter 4 Pointing the wrong way. There we go. Oh, y'all saw ahead. Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Now I say, now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you came to know Christ. It, it would be sort of like this. This is my daughter, Addie, by the way. It's her, uh, it's her birthday today. Yeah. All right, I will. <laughs> um, I'll always be Addie's father. She can do things that are going to upset me. She does do things that upset me, that make me mad sometimes. Ugh. But, uh, but she'll, no matter what she does, she will never stop being my daughter. That's what salvation is for us. We're in God's family. If you are a believer, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you have trusted him, then you are in God's family. You're never going to stop being in God's family. Now, your relationship with God might, it might suffer, it will suffer, if you are intentionally living in a lifestyle of sin. Observation two. It doesn't matter how much you've accomplished with God you are still in danger of worldliness. 
Now, this one's hard um, because, you know, we like to think once we get past a certain level, we don't have to worry about things anymore. Um, at least that's what I like to think. <laughs> um, but it's not true. Uh, in fact, the, what's the saying go? A, a strength unguarded is a double weakness. And um, so normally when you feel yourself puffing up, that's, that's normally the time that you need to be worrying the most. At least, again, that's my experience. Uh, so David went from being this overlooked son, a shepherd to one of the great, overlooked son and shepherd to one of the greatest kings in the world. He accomplished countless conquests and feats with God, placing his life in God's hands constantly. He had experienced the power of God and God's grace, and yet he still fell. If David can fall, after all of that, every one of us can fall. Somewhere along the way, he began caring more about what he wanted than what God wanted. Now, this is the part where I wish I knew what happened between, because you don't get any context about what changed in David's heart. All you see is the historical events. You see these, these things where he was being led by God, and then you see all of a sudden he's looking at this woman that's not his wife, and he's saying, hey, bring her to me, and then he's trying to cover it up, and then he's committing murder. Like, you don't see them between. So, I just thought that was a crazy picture. <laughs> Look at that beard. That beard alone is scary to me. Woo! You know how much testosterone Goliath had to be, had coursing through his veins for that beard? Yeah. Tim, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 1 Corinthians would put it like this. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. First Peter would say this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Observation three. If you are shown your worldliness, respond to God. Now, what David did was awful. It really was. Um, Uriah was one of his best men. Uh, the context, he had been fighting with David for a long time. Um, I'm not sure why he didn't know uh, Uriah's wife. But Uriah was one of his mighty men. And his general was scared to do that to Uriah. Uh, if, you, if you go back and you read it, Joab was scared to follow through with that order. And then when, when Uriah did die, he was scared to report that back to David. So that alone tells you something too. But how David responds when Nathan comes and confronts him is something we all, we all can learn from. David doesn't deny the charges. He doesn't blame Bathsheba or Uriah 
or the architect of his palace for allowing him to creep, you know, like why was he allowed to just look at anybody's bathroom? He doesn't blame the architect. <laughs> I mean, really, go on now. That's just poor architecture. <laughs> he doesn't justify his actions or argue. He doesn't have Nathan put to death and compound his sins. So, you know, if Nathan came, he could have easily killed Nathan. Um, I don't know if he could have easily killed him, but he could have tried to cover it up even more, but he didn't. He humbly confesses and he repents. And then after that, sometime after that, he writes uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 51, that I'd like to read some of. So it starts off, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And towards the end, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David responds with brokenness. And I thought this picture was just really interesting. So, how do we, you know, how does this apply to our life? How do we... How do we fight against worldliness? How do we fight the temptation uh, to make worldly things more important than God? Well, James 4 gives us a good solution. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So, how do we fight against this worldliness? How do we fight against having the wrong priorities in life? If we draw near to God, he will align our priorities with his. And if we don't, we'll find priorities of our own, and we'll make up our own along the way. And we'll miss out. We'll miss out on what God is wanting to do through us. So we're back to those questions. What are ways that I'm successful in putting, God's, putting God first in my life? And how? How do I do that? Are there things in my life now that I'm making more important than my walk with God? And what do you think the most difficult areas to trust God are for most people?
Let's pray. Lord, please speak to us tonight. You have something you want to say to all of us tonight. So, Lord, please um, speak to our hearts. Just lead and direct us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.